0: This is a Vantage House production. Hey folks, welcome back. I didn't expect to be talking about Russia so soon, but here we are. Today is February 23rd, and if it's Friday, you know what time it is. Welcome to the Delphi. Last week, our episode focused on the story of Mark Fogel, an American school teacher being held in a Russian labor camp. That story was pretty intense, it was heartbreaking even. As I thought we would pivot away from Russia this week, we were pulled right back in. Soon after we released our episode, it was announced, I don't know what word to use, I announced by Congressional Republicans that Russia was up to something. They were preparing to install a nuclear weapon in space this year. Terrifying by itself, the Russian news kept going. Today we delve into a story of courage, tragedy, and then yielding fight for democracy. Alexei Navalny, a name synonymous with the Russian opposition movement, has died in a Russian prison at the age of 47. This prison, not too dissimilar to the one where American Mark Vogel is also being held at. Navalny, known for his anti-corruption activism and unwavering stand against President Vladimir Putin's regime, faced arrests, assaults, and a near-fatal poisoning during his decade-long political battle. Despite enduring harsh conditions, including solitary confinement, Navalny's voice against corruption and for a democratic Russia never waned. His death marks a significant blow to the opposition movement and raises serious questions about the future of political dissent in Russia. The response from the international community has been swift. The Biden administration announced major sanctions against Moscow, attempting to hold Vladimir Putin's government accountable for Navalny's death. But given the sanctions already placed because of the Ukraine war, it's hard to see what more the US can do. In the wake of this tragedy, Yulia Navalnaya, Alexis Ruido has emerged as a beacon of hope Taking up the mantle left by her husband, Yulia's call to action underscores a pivotal moment for the Russian opposition. Her resolve to continue Alexei's work has galvanized supporters and drawn attention to the enduring fight for free and democratic Russia. It's not every day that we have someone on our production team who's actually lived in Russia, but it turns out we do. Renier was also a student of the American teacher, Mark Vogel. I sat down with her to chat about what's happening in Russia what political life is like there, and if she felt safe there as as an American. I don't even know how to start this. Right <laughs> here, thank you for coming on to the Dell.
1: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: Even though you, part of the production team, you know, I was just telling you, it's not every day that we have you know someone on the team who has such um, great insight to something that's happening in in real time. You were such an integral part of last week's episode with Mark Fogel and with his sister Anne, and you obviously knew him, he was your teacher. And we have this development right after this episode drops with Alexei Navalny. What's happening in Russia right now?
1: Oh, gosh, that's quite a question. I mean, as long as I lived in Russia.
0: That's a real question.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, as long as I lived in Russia, there were always protests. There were always people getting arrested for various things. Yeah. But I, I almost feel like Russia, I don't know if you know much about Russian history. I studied Russian history pretty extensively and it, it kind of feels like the Russian people are just like exceedingly tired. Mm. I mean, they went right from like, Feudalism, like this really intense form of feudalism mm. straight into like World War One and World War II and then the Soviet era under Stalin and you had Holodimir. and it kind of just feels like there would be a lot more pushback if the Russian people weren't so just like exhausted with oppression to the point where they've almost become just accustomed to it. Mm. or there's a sense that there's no alternative in a lot of ways. But no, I think people are starting to realize that there is an alternative. Now that like media has become so much more prevalent and people are able to see what else is out there and they're able to see other people kind of shining a light on things that are going on in Russia, I think there's much more awareness.
0: I have a question. Mm. So his name, Alexei Navalny, at mm-hmm. Union, obviously would pop up in newspapers from time to time. Uh, he was poisoned. He was arrested over and over and over. How big was Alexei Navalny and the opposition movement?
1: So, all while while I was living in Russia, he was a very prominent figure in the opposition movement. But that's to say that the opposition movement was never, never really talked about much. Like it, it was a presence, but not like on the international stage in the way that it became after his poisoning. In a weird way, his poisoning drew so much attention to it that it just completely catapulted him into like a whole other level of infamy.
0: Hmm. So it kind of like did the opposite of silencing him. Yeah. and Kind of elevated his profile.
1: Definitely, I could say that.
0: It's kind of like, kind of like the Ukraine invasion, not tearing NATO apart, bringing NATO closer.
1: Definitely. Yeah.
0: There's like these miscalculations that keep happening. What's so strange? And then I guess how how has his activism, you know, impacted the opposition movement? Were they doing rallies? Were they doing running candidates when in, in local elections? Like what what was what was his activism?
1: Well, Navalny was really the only person who had enough of a following to really rival Putin mm. because he was compared to everyone else who ran, he was much more qualified than the typical person who is like put up as like a puppet candidate almost mm, mm. just much more qualified much more like connected internationally much better educated and he had like a much more charisma i would say than putin
0: yeah and then it's funny because there's an election coming up uh a presidential election
1: mm-hmm. yes yeah we we're, we're all pretty convinced that it was very carefully timed
0: <laughs> sure okay Right, so that was my next question: Is there, like, Mm -hmm. you know, something to the timing here? It's well, it's not like Navalny was a candidate anyway.
1: Yeah, he's been consistently blocked from being a candidate. Mm. Uh, This is something that Putin has done through the years. When he doesn't, you know, throw people out of buildings (laughs) and you know have them mysteriously die of heart attack at the age of forty, yeah, (laughs) he loves to charge people with embezzlement. Mm. Which the irony there is truly of a depth that I don't think Dostoevsky could have come mm, up with mm. like it's truly because I I don't know if you've read the different Navalny published a very famous report about this massive like city state that Putin allegedly has that he controls with this massive palace built on the money that he has embezzled oh, wow. from the Russian government and yeah the irony there that pretty much everyone in his inner circle is embezzling billions and billions of dollars from the Russian government and he continuously charges anyone who speaks out against him right. with embezzlement as a way to prevent them from formally running against him.
0: Right. And and then I mean I don't know if we can really talk about this but there is with the election coming there's not a chance that Putin's going to lose, I'm guessing.
1: I would be very surprised. I think I think some internationally someone would have to intervene. Mm. But I also I mean I've heard a lot about protests in the wake of Navalny. I mean, he he went back to Russia I think knowing that he was going to be a martyr and I think he knew that at this point that was what he could do for the cause. But I'm not entirely sure that the the level of protests following his death Are going to be enough Mm. to really do what he set out to accomplish.
0: Yeah. And Navalny's wife, what do we know about her? She's, you know, coming out to be someone who's quite resilient. She released this video the the other day, uh, really, really strong. What are your thoughts?
1: I think that. She was very aware. She she and Navalny both knew what they were getting into when they kind of started to create this political career for Mm -hmm. themselves. And I think they both knew when he went back to Russia after one of the first several times he was attacked and then nearly assassinated, they had a long time to prepare for what was coming and to kind of set things up so that they fell in a way that was Mm. beneficial to them in a weird way. Not that I'm accusing her of trying to manipulate the situation at all. I think it's really impressive the way that she's handling it and the fact that she constantly retains this perception of like the bigger picture. Mm. It's rare that you find someone who's willing to fight and even die for something that they believe in these days, and I think that's- Really admirable in a lot of ways.
0: I was going to say, I mean, you you take on a cause like this, it's kind of like almost suicide. There's not, you know, any guarantee that you're going to succeed and bring in political change, especially something as, you know, gargantuan and corrupt as as the the Russian Kremlin. Really, really tough. Let's pivot a little bit to Mark Fogel. Given, you know, kind of like your unique perspective as a former student, mm-hmm. there's a story that just came out today. There was a, uh, uh, a US citizen uh, arrested today in, in Russia, I think it was today, for aiding Ukraine. She like donated fifty dollars to the war effort, <laughs> which is insane.
1: I hadn't heard about yeah. that. That sounds about yeah. right to me. <laughs>
0: Breaking news here. Mm -hmm. How do you view the Russian government's treatment of foreign nationals?
1: It was really scary in a lot of ways. I don't know, to kind of conceptualize it, the school that I went to, the high school, which was the the Anglo-American School of Moscow, was the joint American-British-Canadian embassy school for Moscow. And it was founded in 1949, so right after World War II. And it managed to survive all the way through, like the heights of the Cold War, the Cuban Missile Crisis, like a few different, like near nuclear catastrophes. <laughs> but it was, it survived the so- fall of the Soviet Union. But it was brought down by this, like I don't know if that gives you a concept of like the scale of the current tensions between the United States and Russia. But like they. Are worse than they have been throughout the entirety of the Cold War, Mm. which is like astounding to me. But it was pretty clear living in Moscow in the years leading up to the war that Putin was kind of trying to force diplomats and potentially spies out of Russia by sending a message. And to me, it always felt like Mark was an easy target in a lot of ways. Like he wasn't directly affiliated. With the embassy, he certainly wasn't a spy, but he was just enough, he was American, so he was easily mm. a target to send a message to other people that Russia was no longer a welcome place for foreigners.
0: Right. And, and I mean, I, I don't know how to even ask this question, the best of times, is Russia a safe place for American travelers?
1: Strangely enough, I never felt unsafe in Russia of all the countries that I've lived in and all of the places that I've visited I never felt unsafe mm. there it was always very comforting mm. but never a welcome place like St. Petersburg is very much known as like a tourism hub in a way that Moscow really isn't like people don't really go out of their way to make it accessible to people who don't read Russian and things like that or don't go out of their way to learn. Other languages necessarily. Yeah. But yes, I would say I never felt unsafe, made unsafe by the Russian people. But the Russian government is a different story. And obviously, they don't necessarily represent the Russian people.
0: Right. These days, American, fill in adventurous, wants to go to Russia. Good idea, bad idea.
1: <laughs> I would be surprised if you could get in. Oh. That would be very impressive. I don't think you can even get a visa at this point and not to mention flights aren't going there. Uh, but yeah, I certainly wouldn't be a good idea unless you're trying to be a martyr. <laughs> like if you're willing to throw yourself on the sword of the Russian government as a strategy to like liberate the Russian people. Yeah. That's that's I would kind of applaud that. Well. But it's a strong move. <laughs>
0: right. So not recommended.
1: <laughs> I wouldn't say so. No. It wouldn't be my first move.
0: Gotcha. And then finally, looking ahead, what are going to be the most critical challenges uh, for you know those folks hoping to advocate democracy?
1: I mean, something that I'm always concerned about, it's I think the Putin government has a shelf life, hmm. especially people have been talking about Putin making a play for potentially Moldova and then potentially Romania, and other people have been predicting that he'll go after Poland next. That seems remarkably ambitious, Mm. and I wouldn't put it past him, but I think that would just completely change the course of the war. I mean, if he is struggling to take Ukraine, I can't even imagine what that effort would look like elsewhere, especially once NATO got into the picture. Yeah. So I I don't see Putin's regime as long-lived, but now the question remains is what is the alternative? because Navalny was kind of set up as the only alternative and now people are too a lot of people are too afraid to put themselves forward as an alternative which is probably what he intended yeah but it there will be a power vacuum whenever the war in Ukraine eventually comes to an end
0: it reminds me of gosh I should definitely know this guy's name the warlord from the Wagner. Uh, group. Regosin? Thank you. Yes. When he did his rebellion, um, it almost made you think who's in charge here? You know, what's mm-hmm. how powerful and is Putin if this guy was able to make a pretty direct play at power hitting into Moscow?
1: Yeah. Yeah, that definitely was something. And it definitely required Putin to make a statement afterwards. Mm. I think we all saw that statement. It, yeah. was, it was a pretty clear statement, Yeah. <laughs> but I think the thing that most shocked me, I don't know if this is as alarming to anyone else, but it was about a year after the war started in Ukraine. I was reading through Russian language, like local Russian news articles and things like that. Mm. And there was an article that essentially said that Putin was going to be subsidizing all of the sperm banks in Russia Mm -hmm. so that people being sent to the front lines could donate for free before they left. Mm -hmm. And that was only like nine or 10 months into the war, which from my perspective was pretty telling about how Putin intended to play things.
0: That things are not going to be going well, (laughs) that people are not going to be coming home. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah, that kind of showed me that Putin was willing. Putin was willing to decimate an entire generation of like Russian men Oof. in order to win the war.
0: <laughs> yeah. Wow. And it's it's almost like, what's the point? You know, what's the cause? It's yeah, you know, for the glory of Mother Russia, sure. But the, the Putin's in his seventies, well, yes, maybe ten years or so to live. Like what's the what's the point?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of theories about that. A lot of people think that maybe he has cancer. Some people have theorized that he's already dead and he's actually like someone is wearing his face and (laughs) deep faking him. I think a more plausible theory, (laughs) I've come across quite a few older men in my life, particularly older white men Uh who they like get some kind of diagnosis or someone close to them dies. And they have this moment where they realize that they need to leave a legacy. They kind of are confronted by their own mortality for the first time. Mm. And they feel the need to take drastic measures. Okay, And for some people, that's like...
0: This is really drastic. I need to
1: start... I need to write a book. This is usually the era where a lot of men feel the need to write like a memoir. Mm. I think Putin's memoir is... The invasion. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's like I mean, talk about a last hurrah. This is nuts. This is insane.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Tens and tens of thousands of people dying. Boy, um, wow, Varnier. Once again, it's you know, it's not every day that we have you know someone with such insight on our production team. So thank you so much for this again. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Um, I know it's probably not fun to. Coming on a Tuesday to like talk <laughs> Russian, uh, geopolitics, but I really appreciate it. Uh, and, uh, we'll have this episode out soon. Awesome. Thanks everyone for listening in. Now some other stories to keep track of this week. Last year, Republicans in the house of representatives launched an impeachment inquiry into president Biden, Alexander smirnov That's his actual name once touted as a star witness by Republicans. Even a trusted FBI informant has alleged a bribe to the Biden family. Was charged last week for allegedly making false statements about Biden and his son Hunter, including a story about both men taking $5 million in bribes from Burisma, the Ukrainian energy company. New Justice Department court documents unveiled Tuesday alleged Smirnov told investigators that Russian intelligence officials were involved in passing the story. The false story. It's all false. None of it's true. So, so much for that impeachment. Shifting our gaze to Haiti, the aftermath of President Jovenel Moise's assassination takes a dramatic turn. We actually had an episode on this a few seasons back. The investigation widens, indicting 51 individuals, including high-profile figures like the former First Lady. Some witnesses are saying she couldn't have been where she said she was during the assassination. We're keeping our eyes on this. Last but not least, my personal favorite, Nikki Haley, hasn't won a single Republican contest, but she says she won't drop out. —
1: South Carolina will vote on Saturday, but on Sunday, I'll still be running for president. I'm not going anywhere. I'm campaigning every day until the last person votes, because I believe in a better America and a brighter future for our kids. Nothing good in life comes easy.
0: There's no way she becomes the nominee. It's slim. I mean, that is, unless the Republican frontrunner Donald Trump becomes a convicted felon. Even then, who knows? Before we let you go, we have a new show launching on our Vantage House network tomorrow called Paranormal Radio. We have some pretty scary stories sometimes here, but this will be a podcast dedicated to real-life spooky paranormal occurrences. I listened to a little bit, freaked out. Hope you tune in. Thanks for listening. I'm Jaylen. Shoutouts to Eli, Devell, Derek, and Brendan, and the entire sound team for juggling this episode. This is The Delve. We'll see you next Friday.